Morning, Saints of HBC. Missed you. I'm back. Thank you, Vicky. Right on cue as always. You can turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, it's a good reminder to me uh, when I'm away of expendability, that God designed the church with Christ as the head and every church to function in a way that it's not dependent on any one person. And that's why the image that the New Testament gives of a body is such a perfect metaphor for it, because a body functions together. And as Paul says, every part has its role to play. And when one part of the body is suffering, the whole body suffers. And when one part of the body is doing well, the whole body can do well with. And so thankful for the body of Christ here. Uh, thankful in particular for the elders who faithfully preached God's word uh, while uh, I got a chance to not preach and to get away. And I think that to me is, um, it's helpful from time to time to, you can hear uh, a local church talk about being an elder-led church and uh, particularly uh, in maybe the day and age we're in and uh, the church background you may or may not have, uh, what an elder is and what an elder does might uh, be a mystery to you and probably in a lot of churches that could just seem like a board of directors behind the scenes or trustees, decision makers, but no real practical connection to the daily life of the body, but in the New Testament, uh, an elder is one who primarily is given the task to feed and to lead the church, and they do that as a group, and feeding the sheep is uh, contingent on those guys knowing the Word of God, being able to teach, it says in 1 Timothy 3, and so when we get a season of ministry here where all the elders can also uh, teach, especially in succession, one week after the other, I think you get to see that's what an elder is called to do when it comes to feeding the flock, but then there's also leading the flock of God, which really comes down to uh, that man is called to watch his life and doctrine closely. Why? Because personal holiness matters. Uh, for, the, for an elder to be an example to follow, uh, there has to be an element of modeling what personal holiness looks like so that that holiness also leads the church as an example as a whole. And so I'm thankful that uh, the elders here, they do, they, they lead by way of personal holiness in their own lives and they promote that in the church. So thanks be to God uh, for this local church and the way that God has designed it and, uh, and the way we continually want to live up to that. Uh, if you're now in Romans chapter 5, uh, you might be wondering why we're here. Well, it was back in May that we um, attempted to get through all of chapter 5, and imagine that, we only made it five verses in five weeks. Big surprise. Well, uh, I'm going to try to finish the chapter today because what I wanted to do coming into this month is to go to Romans chapter 6, which is a great chapter for understanding how we follow Christ become more like him. And I think that supplements where we were just in Proverbs, because Proverbs just kind of gave you like, this is what you are to do. This is all the different ways in which uh, we are to uh, live our lives in such a way that people see a difference in us. And so we heard sermons on the tongue and how we can use our speech to the glory of God. Uh, we heard sermons on our pride and how we should be more humble and seeking counsel and we could be tempted in sermons like that in the aftermath to think all of it rests on us when Romans 6 tells us a different story. That it is by the grace of God and, and by our union with Christ and led and filled by the Holy Spirit that we can live holy lives. 
So I was going to jump into Romans 6 today, but then I, I don't know, it's, it, it's like, I got to finish chapter 5, so let's do that. Uh, Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 6, because we left off in verse 5 back at the end of May, and then we'll get through the end of the chapter today by 6 o'clock. <laughs> All right. Romans 6, or Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so... Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Romans 5, as you just heard, is monumental in the Bible for understanding the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after spending a summer in the Proverbs and not particularly looking on the gospel of Jesus Christ, what a wonderful month it'll be for us to refocus our heart's attention on this is the lifeblood of our Christian faith, knowing Jesus Christ is Lord. And we know Jesus Christ says, Lord, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have heard the gospel. We are gospel people. So it is never a bad idea to go back to look at the gospel up closely for never knowing who comes in any given Sunday to hear the good news of the gospel preached. But also for those in Christ to remind us of how we live and move and have our being. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. Over the course of the summer, uh, it was maybe the idea of my oldest son to um, go back and, and revisit uh, watching some of the Star Wars movies. 
And after we have made our way, there's, there's many of them. And I just threw out the question uh, the other day at dinner. Hey, guys, what's, what would you say is like kind of the big story of Star Wars from episode 1 to 110? You know, and, and I got a variety of, of people at the table that, that speak now. Down to the two-year-olds. They, they don't know many words, but they actually know the melody. Dun, 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 dun. So that was their answer to dad's question, which I took as an implication. Uh, they understand Darth Vader is the key theme. Uh, and we went around the table and talked about it. And, um, you know, there was, you know... Uh, I actually don't remember all the different ideas that were thrown out there about what's like the big story of it. And then I, I threw out, well, hey, what do you, would you guys say that maybe the big story of Star Wars, at least in, you know, the Star Wars we normal people know, I know the nerds out there have a canon and there's books attached, but we'll just stick with the stuff we've seen on the screen. And I said, would you say maybe it's the Skywalker family tree or something like that. It's the legacy of the Skywalkers. And if you don't understand the Skywalkers, you won't get all the Star Wars. And I don't know, they had lost interest by that point. Like, Dad, (laughs) seriously, we just want to watch the movie tonight. But when we're in Romans, in particular chapter 5, and understanding justification by faith, what it does point us to is the grand story of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And and at the heart of understanding this story is the gospel of justification by faith. And at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding justification by faith, which is what Romans chapter 5 started with, therefore having been justified by faith, what you find at the heart of justification by faith is the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That the grand story of redemption is Jesus Christ and it is what he gives sinners that are, no, that are not right with God, their creator. He gifts them their righteousness. It's his that's given to them. And so that's why Paul starts at the beginning of Romans 5. Having been justified, we've, we've answered the question, how can sinners be made right with God? Justification by faith. And then in May, we looked at all the blessings we get from that justification. And we talked about there in verse 1, you can see it for yourself. We are at peace with God. So that, that's the big one. Because we were enemies of God, and now we're at peace with them. And then verse 2 says, uh, we stand now by faith and grace. We do not relate to God. Having been justified by faith and given the righteousness of Christ, we have a relationship by faith on the grace of God, that he moved towards us. We didn't move towards him and earn anything. We stand in grace, and that makes us exult in hope of the glory of God that one day we will be in forever. And then verses three to five said, even if there's tribulations in this life, maybe suffering that makes us doubt how good our salvation is, Paul says we can even rejoice in our tribulations because we know something. God is actually doing something in those tribulations to make us more like Christ. And in the lowest point of our lives, when we may be tempted to doubt that it's all worth it, verse five says, here comes the indwelling Holy Spirit who could say to you in the worst trial you can be going through, in the greatest amount of suffering, even if you lose it all, believer, do you know one thing you will never lose? The love of God that's given to you in Christ. And so it's, Paul says the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts, the love of God in Christ. So whatever threads have snapped that you're hanging on by, the one that is unbreakable, 
is that God loves you in Christ and proved it by sending his son to die for you. So, so that's Romans 1 through 5. These are the benefits and blessings of our salvation. But there might be a question lingering. How can we be sure that we can keep all of this? That we are permanently good with God? Paul, can you expound upon those first five verses? That there is no chance of his wrath for us now or forever. Is it, are we sure about this? And so Paul is going to kind of pick up on the idea of the, the goodness that we can depend upon in God. Maybe that subjective reality in verse 5. When God encourages and affirms in your heart in the midst of your lowest times that he really loves you and he proved it by sending Jesus to die for you, that's a subjective reality you experience, believer. But then Paul says, I'm gonna, we're going to move from that to some objective realities. Let me go a layer deeper into the gospel, and that's what the rest of Romans chapter 5 is, which we will now cover in the next 30 minutes or so, give or take 30 minutes. So let's start with the, the first glorious promise that comes to us in the gospel on top of all of the good that we already saw in the first five verses of Romans 5. Let's talk about the glory of reconciliation. How can we be sure that we, uh, we, are, we are safe and secure in the love of God in Christ, that we are good with God. Well, let's talk about the glory of reconciliation, and that's in verses 6 to 11. And, and really, it's summarized as this. Praise God that Jesus cleared the debt I owed. That's the summary of reconciliation. Jesus paid my debt. So verse 6, Paul starts with the thought maybe in your head, hey, how did I even get in? Um, how did I earn that debt removal? what application did I fill out, you know, when you need a loan or something like that and you got to show you got some credit to lean on or somebody else who has credit that you're leaning on to lean on and you fill out the application and you submit it and they review it and say, nah, you don't got enough. How much credit, believer, did you bring to the table for Jesus to clear your debt? Verse six, for a while we were still helpless. That's what you brought to the table. That was the application that you filled out. Thousands of pages of application to have your sin debt removed, to go over all the nooks and crannies of the sickness in your own heart because of sin and all that you could put on there, you wrote in big, bold letters, helpless. That's what Paul's saying. That's how you got in. You were without strength, you were feeble, you were poor, you were helpless. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There was a plan for that. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's not so much speaking about at the right time in your life, though I think you could say that whenever it was, God saved you and Christ was the right time. And I mean that. I mean, reflect upon that. I mean, some of you have a testimony that you would say it was... It's unbelievable looking back now how God orchestrated so many different events in my life and people and I'm not the explanation for my own salvation because I see, I can look back and see all the, the rivers that then flowed into the one river of providence that at the right time in my own life, 
God save me. Yes, that is true, and it's different for every single person, but really what Paul is talking about here is the right time, which was the time according to God's perfect plan from eternity past. Uh, Paul picks up on this idea in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's God's timetable that was at the right time. And it wasn't just God who understood that perfect timing of salvation being accomplished in Christ in real time when he came. Uh, Christ understood that about himself. Remember Mark? What were the first words that Mark records in his gospel that Jesus came saying? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15. That was the opening line he had. Jesus had an understanding of his own perfect timing of arriving in the world. That the time was at hand. And that not only he understood the timing of his mission, he understood the mission of his mission. He came to die for the good and godly people. No, absolutely wrong. What did he say in Mark 2.17? I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. It's the sick person that needs the physician, not the healthy one. And so this is not only in God's perfect timetable, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that it was God the Father's plan, it was Christ who was in on the plan, and he knew it was his time to come, and he knew who he was coming for, and it wasn't the good and godly people, it was these sinners. And that's the good news Jesus came to preach, and that's what we still preach today. Jesus came to tell you of your debt to God, and then to tell you how you can get out of it. And if you can say that I, at whatever point it was prior to the gospel, hearing it, could fall under the category of ungodly there in verse 6, you could get in. How did you get in? You were able to say, yeah, the one character qualification I have to receive the goodness and kindness of God in the gospel, there's only one box to check and it's ungodly. And that just cuts against our pride, doesn't it? Like, there's no other description of me without Christ. There's no other description of you without Christ. The only box you check is what's there in verse 6. <laughs> you have to be ungodly, which is the opposite of godly. Is how simple the gospel is to understand, to present it to the, to, the, to, to the smallest and to the least. There's just God and then there's everyone else. And those who belong to God are godly and those who don't belong to him are ungodly. And at the right time, while we were helpless in our ungodliness, Christ died for them. So that's our biggest problem, isn't it? Our moral bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is the state of being utterly ruined in your financial assets. Our spiritual bankruptcy, our moral bankruptcy is before God. And here's the deficit. He is holy and we are not. And that's it. That's what it comes down to. That what, that's what puts us as sinners in an infinite debt to God. He's holy. We're not. Now, what would we do with somebody that bankrupt? Lock them up. Until they could pay. Is that what God did for sinners? No, he took the opposite approach. And that's what you see in the next two verses, seven and eight. In seven, Paul digresses to say, look, <laughs> if somebody is in that bad of straits, who's going to help them out? 
verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Forget who it was that said, you might be able to count on one hand the amount of people you know in your life that might die for you. And that's probably it. And then he says, perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Maybe the person you like the most, yes. But not an enemy. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners. Verse 10, while we were his enemies. That's what's unbelievable about the gospel. One hardly would do this for a good man, someone you like. Why? Because our instinct is, is self-preservation. And you know what? You get what you deserve. If you're hard up, you know, if you're out of luck, you got yourself into that. You get yourself out of it. And then to go even beyond that and say an enemy I might show that compassion and care and selflessness to. I mean, it's just wired against us. You know we do this. Uh, people that are supposedly our enemies, we hardly want to do anything for them. We find ourselves at times sinfully rooting against them. As I watch the training camp reports for the NFL, what's my proclivity is to look at the other teams in the Steelers division and go, yes, guys are already injured. All right. And then I'm like, what? Like, Adam, you're actually, this like guy, like this is his living. He, he needs his knee. Here you are, great, MCO, at least half the season. I mean, it's just terrible. I bring it down to the local level. You crazy parents over at the Y with kids playing soccer. And how, right? I got an amen there. How fired up you get for your seven-year-old's team to beat the others? Where you're gonna yell at the ref over a game of soccer? Come on. But you see, I'm just using that to illustrate. We... When somebody's our enemy, whether just for 30 minutes in a game of little kickers, how quickly we can turn and that comes out in us to just show us nobody really wants to help their enemies out, except one. If you didn't have five names, if I said on that one hand and you said, I can't count any, you can count one, and it's Christ. Amen. That is the one person you can count on who you were an enemy of that would die for you. So you can't sit in here and say, you know, life's been so bad to me, I got nobody in my corner. See, the Bible tells you otherwise, friend. You may have lost the ability to trust in anyone, save one. Verse 8, God demonstrates his love toward you. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And this is the high point of that first section. Because it tells us that we did not bring anything to the table to make ourselves lovable. And there wasn't anything so unlovely in us that held God back God. See, see how this levels out the legalist or the libertine? The legalist thinks God demonstrated his love toward you because there was some lovable thing in you. And legalist, Pharisee, religious type people think that way. Yeah, I know, we're all sinners. I just can't keep, seem to think of any sins I've done lately. Which is probably why God is, you know, pumped I'm on his team. And he levels that. But also for the person in here who would be so, whatever life threw at you that makes you feel so unlovable. And shameful and guilty and God would never want to save me. Because maybe there's been tons of people in your life who have told you that. That you're not worth anything. 
But when it comes for God accepting you in Christ, he doesn't look at that either. It's, there's no loveliness or unloveliness that holds back what? His love was what? A, it was already there. Because Christ coming to die for sinners was a demonstration. It wasn't a determination, if you want to call it that. As in, he had to die so that God could love you. Is that the gospel we preach? That Jesus had to die so that God could love us. Well, then you'd have to take that word demonstration out of that verse. Meaning it was already there. The, the love of God, John three sixteen, so loving the world that he gave his son. So, so nothing, and here's, I mean, to just zoom out a second to think about the character of God. This is his unchanging nature is, uh, if you wanted like the big 25 cent theological word, his immutability. God does not change. So if the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, God is love, then Jesus dying on the cross doesn't change anything about God in his love. That he isn't loving and then suddenly Jesus dies on the cross and now he's this God of love. That's a heresy. So what does change in God's view of the sinner is his wrath, which is not opposed to his love. His, his wrath was removed, verse 9. When you have been justified by his blood, you'll be saved from the wrath of God through him. It doesn't say when you've been justified by his blood, you will finally receive the love of God through him. God is love. But you can be a damned sinner, and God is love. But his wrath abides on you, John 3, 36. And his wrath is not in opposition to his love. His wrath is just the just demonstration of his holiness. That he who sins or she who sins shall die. And you could maybe understand in your own world that wrath and justice are not opposed to love and compassion. Because if you really love someone and there's something bad going to happen to them, you may get revved up in your wrath to protect them. Mama bears out there. Now here's where we fall short as sinners and the analogy falls apart. We don't maintain a perfect harmony of all of those characteristics at the same time. So we can be loving and then lose it in a way that our wrath came out, but it, it's not tempered, we're not holy enough. God is. It's the doctrine of God's simplicity. He can be all of those things to the fullness at the same time. So completely loving, completely holy, completely just, all of it at the same time, which is what makes him God and not us. But we can relate. It's hard to because I'm like, man, when wrath comes out in Adam, love is like, seems love has gone out the window. How could I pull it back in? By the grace of God. Back to the text. This is the good news of the gospel of being reconciled is that we were the enemies of God, verse 10, but then reconciled to him through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, 
We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, so the theme of this first section is, if you want to know that you stand secure before God in your justification, that he, he sees you as debt cleared, you still don't owe him anything, i.e., Sin brings about death and you will die and your life needs to pay that ransom. When you are justified by the blood of Christ, verse 9, you're no longer his enemy. You have been reconciled to him by way of or through the death of his son, verse 10. But then see, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. I mean, if he did this greater thing, which is, look at the beginning of verse 10. If you were his enemy, if you were fighting tooth and nail against God, if you hated God, and he gave his son to reconcile you to him, then the lesser thing, how much more then will you be saved by his life? Like, what would you have to worry about now? What, what could you possibly lose now if he already gave you the greatest thing he could give you, which is his son whom he loves? So an argument from the greater to the lesser. I mean, he uses the same kind of concept in verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. If, if, if Christ's work was efficient for us, justifying us, of course we're going to be saved from his wrath at the end. But verse 10 says, even as we live today, we're being saved by his life, as in he's keeping you, believer. If his power in the gospel was enough to reconcile you with God, then he can keep you too. You will be saved by his life. And then verse 11, the high point is, so not only this, it's not just some part of the gospel about the glory of reconciliation to be like, oh, that's a cool concept, sweet. He's saying we should exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we've received reconciliation. This first section ends in praise. So is your heart lifted up right now because of it? It should be. But there could be things maybe in your life that... that Make it hard to do that. One, if you haven't been thinking on the gospel lately, if you haven't been walking in close communion with Christ lately, this may fall on, um, I wouldn't say deaf ears, if God has given you ears to hear and you're in Christ, but the, your, your hearing could be impaired right now. That communion with Christ that's, that's, that should be there, that isn't there, that walking with him and talking with him. You hearing from God and his word and him hearing from you in prayer. If you haven't been doing that lately, then maybe you're not rejoicing right now. And today would be a great day to start. Because we're looking at the glory of the gospel together. And remembering, no matter what other relationship I have in life that seems not to be good right now. We'll call it in a non-reconciled situation. How wonderful it is that I'm reconciled to God. Which leads me to say another thing about this. Maybe um, what could be a problem... Is, is not your vertical relationship with God right now. It may be that you have a spirit of bitterness towards another person, that you're not applying this gospel that you rejoice in. Ephesians 4.32, you're to forgive as you've been forgiven. I think it would be really hard to, to really be full of exaltation, rejoicing, verse 11, in God through Jesus who we've received reconciliation, but to have a person on your heart right now that you're like, I don't like them. I'm mad at her. And until they come to me, I ain't working. And if that's the way God worked with you, where would you be? I mean, that's just the gospel logic of how we go from vertical to horizontal in our lives. Ephesians 4.32. And then Ephesians 5.1. So walk in love. As Christ walked in love, 
And you say, Adam, is it that easy? No, it's not easy, but it is that simple. And praise be to God for a simple way we take our vertical relationship with him and all the things we love about his salvation to us. It's simple to then take that and say, yes, therefore I should forgive as I've been forgiven. But it's hard. And so we come back to say, I'm glad that verse 11 says, all this happens through my Lord Jesus Christ, not through my grin and bear it effort. I go back to the gospel and say, if I'm that helpless, hopeless, weak, vile sinner that verse 6, 7, and 8 describe me as, if I'm that enemy of God and you saw me in that state and sent your son to die for me, that's the starting point I could have to move towards reconciliation to someone else. If I really can see just how bad I was and how loving and gracious God was to me. So that's the first thing, the glory of our reconciliation. Can it get better? Of course it gets better. What is it about us that changed that allowed God to to, to remove that wrath from us? How does he see us? Well, that's the gift of our righteousness in 12 to 17. See, he, he clears our debt, if you want to call it that, in 6 to 11. But then we'll call in 12, 17, you can put this in your notes or in the margin, Jesus credits my account. Because isn't that kind of a cool thought? I dare not say, anybody been bankrupt lately? But being bankrupt, from what little I've studied it, thanks Google, like you got no assets whatsoever. You're, you're, you're just done, you got nothing. So you come back to zero. But see, that's not what the gospel does. It doesn't just bring you back to neutral with God. Verses 12 to 17, you're given the righteousness of Christ, which is now God, through Christ, crediting your account. So imagine what our world would be like if all the bankrupt people not only were cleared of their debt, but they were given like a cool million. No strings attached. Like, just declare bankruptcy. You get a million bucks. And that still pales in comparison to what you've been given in the gospel. So 12 to 17 now moves into this gift of righteousness. So we stop at reconciliation, and now we start to talk about what we had in our sin debt being part of the under the reign of Adam and the curse of sin and death, and now what we get under the reign of Jesus Christ, our new king, and in his realm. So therefore, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, speaking of Adam, and here's what happened. Sin comes into the world through Adam, Genesis chapter 3, and that sin brings the curse of death. And so death spreads to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Now, he, he digresses for a moment in verses 13 to 16 to talk about this idea of the law bringing sin into the world because the law didn't bring sin into the world. It was already in there. It's just when the law came in, there were new ways that we sinners can now see ways for us to sin. I mean, read up Genesis 6. It said every, you know, when God is starting over, when he floods the world and only saves Noah and his family, why? Because he looks and sees that every inclination of the human heart only wanted to do evil always, and they had no Bible to sin against or to transgress. It was just in the human heart to in every way live in a way that's dishonoring and disobedient to God. What the law did was an attempt to give a direction to go in, but with that, just gave new ways for God's people to see how they can still sin. I'm reminded of a 
you know, a preacher who said he preached on the Ten Commandments and expounded upon them and described them. And some guy came down front and said, all right, now I know I got some more sins to commit. Opposite effect. But that's what the law can do. It can prompt or tempt us like the no trespassing signs. You can drive past like five different properties of just a bunch of woods and trees, but if the fifth one says no trespassing, suddenly you're like, I wonder what's in there. (laughs) It's the same trees you just passed by. Well, why would they put a no trespassing sign up if there's not something really good inside? Oh, okay. Tempt that fate and see what hunters up in a tree somewhere mistaking you for a buck. But when you see the no trespassing sign, when you see the don't walk on the grass, there's something instinctual in us, thanks Adam, not me, the Adam of Genesis, that was imputed to us. That's what verse 13 is saying. Sin can be imputed. As in we all, from the beginning, carried in the seed of Adam, has been passed on this this desire to disobey God. And we don't have to sin, verse 14 says, in the same likeness of Adam. Uh, we, we are under his kingdom, if you want to call it, the kingdom of Adam, which is just another way to say we're all sinners by nature and by choice, that we are born into the world with the nature to sin, to disobey God, and then at some point along the path, we start choosing to do it willfully. It's a both and. And that has reigned. And Paul is trying to show that, look, this is, this is the... the burden or this is the sentence over us all the evidence that there is no sinless person in history is that there is no deathless person in history for every person that died evidence that they have fallen under the what the penalty of sin the wages of sin is death so when people die there's evidence that there goes another sinner with that sin given passed on imputed from adam And it's on and on and on and on, and that remains. Now, some of you might might look at these verses from 12 to 14 and think, man, that's, you know, because Adam sins, I sin? Like, that doesn't seem fair that that guy messing up should be imputed to me. I I should be a sinner because Adam was a sinner back in the garden. And I think, if you think that's extreme, just from a standpoint of human reasoning, maybe two things to consider. One is the obvious, like you think you would have done anything different. Really? Let me just look at your own life over the last week. Think of the ways you've sinned. So you think you wouldn't have been tempted to disobey God in some way when you had everything right there and it was all good? Do you have a lot of things now going your way? Things are good that you could still in a moment lose your temper, lose your cool, lose your patience and sin? Or you might think that it's just extreme that, you know, he disobeys God that one time and plunges the whole human race into what? Sin. You know, that, that, that seems extreme. And I think that might have less to do with our exalted view of ourselves and more to do with our not exalted view of God and his holiness. I mean, consider this. And this is totally hypothetical. I know you're going to be like, but wait. So just follow. If um, for whatever reason nobody had sinned in the world up until this morning and you're driving to church and you got upset with your kid or something like that and you had a harsh word 
That one sin, that one harsh word that you think is just a small thing. You know, I was just with my kid in the car by myself. That one sin, if it was the first sin in human history, would have been enough to plunge the whole world into sin and God's judgment. Why? Because he's that holy. So why we don't take sin lightly is because God can't. Because he is that holy. And just that one sin you could commit could plunge all of humanity into punishment and death and sin enter the world through because God demands perfection because he is perfect. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When we start in our own human reasoning having problems with the way God in his justice has has demanded sin to be punished, that first and foremost is an inadequacy of our own understanding of his holiness. He is that holy. But He's also that loving that in ways in which we would say, well, if it's that bad, why didn't he just do away with it? Why does he bring us all through this? Because he's also that loving to want to what? Save. See, a right understanding about the gospel is understanding who God is and who we are and the infinite distance in between apart from the grace of God in Christ. And this is the, this is the um, comparison that Paul is setting up here when talking about the gift of righteousness in Christ. First, he wants to paint the back, the black backdrop. He wants to show you in 12 through 15 how bad it was under the reign of sin and death. Thanks be to Adam sitting in the garden. Verse 15, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, now he wants under that that. that black backdrop, now he wants Christ to shine. How much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? There is the turning point in verse 15. Brothers who went to buy that diamond and you didn't know what you were really doing when you walked into that jeweler shop, if you were gonna get a good deal or not. But the one thing that diamond seller knew that if he put all the different options on the glass, You'd be like, oh, they don't look that different. I don't know, just give me the cheapest one. So what does the guy do, sucker? He puts out the black velvet, and then he lays them out. And then you see like, wow, yeah, uh, clarity, cubits, uh, whatever. Yeah, uh, uh, give me the good one. He wants to show you the difference. He wants to show you the contrast. So you see the one that's the best of them all and that's what Paul was doing to show you how good this gift of righteousness is. He had to show you how bad the penalty of sin was. So by Adam's one transgression, many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound of many. And now he shows the difference. See, this gift of Christ is not like the one who came through the one who sinned. Because judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17, so if by this sin of Adam, death could reign through the one, how much greater to those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in through the life of Jesus Christ. What's he saying right there? The strong man wins. Remember that in Mark 3? 27, he's speaking about when he's accused of having a demon 
And he says, you know, the, if there's a man in the house who begins to rob it, the only way you get rid of that man is the stronger man comes in, ties him up, binds him. And once that guy's out, that other guy who's lost, he's lost to the stronger man. And that's the principle here. He's saying, look, yeah, the, the, the condemnation in verse 16 that came as a result of the trespass, that was big. And we see this in human history. Nobody's denying that. Death, destruction, suffering, sin, all in the world because of Adam's sin, that's big, but here's what's bigger. That through the gift of the other, those transgressions can be forgiven and result in justification. Yes, death can reign through one, but much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the strong man wins in such a way, there's no reversal of that. That's where you have the assurance of your salvation. That why the, the gift of Christ's righteousness is greater than the wages of sin is because the wages of sin can never undo that gift of righteousness to those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. That's why it's superior. That's why this gift of righteousness to be in the realm under the new king's reign is so wonderful. In verse 17... And it reigns in your life. It's a new king. You're in a new kingdom. You just live in the overlap still between the two. See, before you became a Christian, you just draw a circle on me on this side of the pulpit, and I would be in Adam. I know that's confusing because I'm Adam. And that just means I live under the reign of sin, and it tells me what to do, and I do it. And then when you come to the kingdom of Christ, when he is your Lord and Savior, now he is your new master. That's why we call him the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just Savior, he's Lord. He, 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 he owns you now, as he rightly should. But see, the problem, and this is what we'll get to in chapter 6, starting next week, we still live in between the two, as in there's overlap. I, I belong to this new kingdom, but in my flesh, there's still the struggle for me to go back living like I'm still in the old one. So you would draw those two circles and there's me right there in the overlap. He is my new king. He is my new master, my savior, my Lord. But still I'm in the flesh, which is, if you want to say, tempted to live under this way. And, I, and what is the Christian life? What is the renewing of your mind in Ephesians 4 or Romans 12 other than being reminded, this is not who I am anymore. I do not belong to this kingdom, and I am not a slave to my sin. I am now a slave to God, and I live in the kingdom of righteousness. And that's the gift of righteousness that came and now reigns through the one Jesus Christ. How much more? So maybe ask yourself this question. If you seem to be struggling with sin today, am I living as if I'm still under the reign of Adam? Or do I look at the fruit in my life, and it truly belongs to the reign of Christ he is my Lord and he is my master. And I know the question we can ask is, does that mean we will be sinless? No, but you will sin less. I mean, that's the evidence of the fruit in your life. You won't be sinless, but you will sin less because you have this new master. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. You need to walk by the spirit, which is a life from within before it's fruit on the outside. That's all that comes with the gift of righteousness and then lastly, the good news of the gospel doesn't end at gifted righteousness, but tells us about this reign of God, this reign of grace that deals with me in a state of grace 
and not a state of the law. And you might think like, well, I feel like I've been hearing this in Romans 5. Yeah, because the gospel's that good, he repeats himself. That we do stand in verse 2 of chapter 5. We stand by faith and grace. And now he's expounding on that in verses 18 to 21. We live under the reign of grace, not under the reign of the law. The effects of the righteousness of Christ versus the penalty of Adam are thus, starting at verse 18. What's this reign of grace like in my life? Well, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Just focus on that idea of one act. And that's the act that took place at Golgotha, as opposed to the act that took place in the garden. Some early preachers would use this tale of two trees illustration. There was a tree in the garden where the first Adam brought us out of righteousness into damnation. And there was a tree on Golgotha where the last Adam brought us out of that damnation into righteousness. And that's the great exchange. That's the reign of grace that we now live under that verse 18 is talking about. There was an act that happened in the garden an act of disobedience that led to our condemnation, but now this one act of righteousness of Christ resulted in my justification in life to all men. Verse 19, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. This idea of many being made righteous doesn't just deal with the act of Christ on the cross, but it also includes his obedient, perfectly obedient life that is credited to your account. Why you live under a reign of grace, why you don't live under the penalty of the law is because Christ imputes to you his perfect account. So God does not see you as he would see any sinner who hasn't put his faith in Christ and you can never pay yourself out of that debt, he sees you with the perfect account of Christ's righteous life of obedience. Kept the law perfect in every way. In theology, we call that the act of obedience of Christ, AOC. (gasps) Just seeing if you're awake. But that's what it is, the act of obedience of Christ. He actually had to live a life perfect to the law of God. So he actively did that. We saw that when we went through the gospel of Mark. Without sin entirely. And then at the cross, they call this the passive obedience of Christ. As in, he received the penalty that an unjust sinner should receive. Yet he was just. And this is why Romans 3.26 talks about what? That he is both our just and justifier. See, Christ is, is just in that he actually, in his act of obedience, could be the one just man in all of humanity, never to sin. But he's also the justifier that his passive obedience of receiving the wrath of God on the cross is what I can stand forgiven by. And it comes together in the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ. All of that righteousness, active and passive, imputed to me, I stand in grace. And that's, that, that's something that we can say we understand, but we'll never fully understand until eternity. I mean, because any kind of analogy we make here falls apart when um, 
I guess we really have a problem with when someone else's mistake is imputed to our account and we pay the punishment for what they did as much as we love the good news of when somebody's good deed gets imputed to us. My mind goes back to surprise football and it would be this time of year that I would be in football camp, whether in high school or college, and we'd have to run at the end of practice. And um, probably the biggest complaint I had against that was it was always the most out of shape coach that was in charge of making us run, which just to me seemed really wrong. But on top of that, there would be this thing like, hey, everybody's got to finish this sprints in this amount of time or you're all running again. And I would just be there. And listen, I was, I, I, there's a part of me that just injustice, I can't take it, especially because of the legalist in me. I'm in shape. I'm a well-conditioned Pharisee. <laughs> and at one point in high school, I had had enough. We were out there running 20 minutes past because some guys weren't in shape. That's not my fault. So we were running and it was training camp and there were woods to the left of us and it was getting darker. So I just ran away from the pack and sat in the woods until I was spotted by said out of shape coach. And he dismissed everyone else and I just had to run laps by myself at the end. And I got what I deserved. But see, the coaches could also flip it around and say, hey, it's the end of practice, guys. You've had a great week of camp. If so-and-so can throw this football and land it in that garbage can, you all don't have to run today. See, we all like that part of it when the guy does the good thing and we all receive the blessings and benefits, but we want to cry foul when the person doesn't live up to it and we all get the benefit or not the benefit of that. And this is what he's saying in 19. It is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ that we get to live in the benefits of his righteous life that gives us pardon. And it was because he was obedient in every way, and even Philippians 2.8, obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So wrapping up, what happens now? He digresses to the law again. Look, where does the law fit in? Well, it came in just so the transgression would increase. If we're talking about this reign of grace, then they, some might ask, why was the law needed at all then? Well, it just showed that, that all the different ways, all the creative ways we can continue to be disobedient. It can never change us from the inside, but from the outside, it could give us a path to follow. So where that law comes in, more opportunities to sin, but guess what is always outpacing the law in sin? Grace abounding all the more. You know, sometimes we have the image that in, in, in our Christian lives, sin is always outpacing grace as if there's this race around a track and grace and is always trying to catch up to the sin in our lives. But it's quite the opposite, friend. In Christ, grace always has the lead. Yes, your sin in the flesh is trying to run you down. But the grace of Jesus Christ, what? Abounds all the more. It's never gonna catch up to those who are in Christ. That's good news. You may feel like it, and that's actually evidence of you growing in Christ. When you feel the, the, the hot breath of the competitor and the enemy on your back in that race, and you're like, sin is going to win this race in my life, and Christ is going, nope, supercharge, boom, you shoot out of there. Why? Because grace is going to abound all the more in your life. He's, he's remade you that way, not to lose. And he's, made you, he's given you the ability to do that. Now we're going to expound on that in Romans 6 starting next week. How does that actually happen? 
But the promise is right there. Verse 21, I live under the reign of grace. Sin might reign in death. But grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death was once king, but at the cross, grace took the throne. Jesus, in his righteousness, started a new reign in your life when you put your faith in him. If you're not in Christ today, there's only one way for grace to reign in your life. And that's to trust Christ. He's either your all or he's nothing. Sometimes we think the world falls into two categories, belief in God and unbelief in God, and that's not actually it. There's lots of people who believe in a God. Other religions, they believe in God. James says demons believe in God. The world only is seen in two categories, in Adam or in Christ. And those who are in Adam don't have their sin forgiven. And they don't have the righteousness of Christ. And those who are in Christ have been given his righteousness. And so if you're here today and you're thinking about the fruit in your life and what it's produced, the simple question is, are you in Christ? Has his righteousness been given to you? Do you believe you're a sinner whose only hope for life now and forever is in the righteous life of Christ? Spurgeon wrote, again you say, how can I believe that Christ died for me? And he says, well, Jesus says he died for sinners. Can you say you're a sinner? Can you admit to that? Because if you could admit to being a sinner, then you can repent and trust in Christ. But you have to get over that first hurdle, which is your own pride, your self-righteousness. You're, you're wanting to wiggle out of it right now. And he says if you can admit you're a sinner, if you could see the, the chasm between you and God that only Christ could bring you to, then you can be saved. So trust in him today. Give your life to Christ now and live in his reign of grace forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. Thank you for its precious promises to us. Thank you that as we uh, even get to spend some time now celebrating that in communion, that these truths would be sealed to our hearts to rejoice that what you accomplished on the cross and, and all the blessings and benefits that come with it are ours in him. So take this time, Lord, we, we want you to work in our lives, renew our lives, change us from the inside out. We ask in Christ's name, amen.